Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, senior minister here at Westminster and moderator of the Town Hall Forum. The theme of the Town Hall Forum is Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Today's speaker is Rabbi Michael Lerner, editor and publisher of Tikkun, a bi-monthly Jewish critique of politics, culture, and society. He is also the author of Jewish Renewal, A Path to Healing and Transformation, and co-author with Cornell West, who has also spoken from the, for the Town Hall Forum, the book Jews and Blacks, Let the Healing Begin. His latest book is The Politics of Meaning, the subject of which has led the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal to refer to the rabbi as the guru of the White House, although Rabbi Lerner has a few things to say about that. In addition to a rabbinical education, Rabbi Lerner holds two PhDs from the University of California at Berkeley, one in philosophy and one in psychology. Combining the insights of political philosophy and psychology with a deep spiritual base rooted in Hebrew scripture and the writings of Josh, Abraham Joshua Heschel and others, Rabbi Michael Lerner calls America to something better than the politics of selfishness and despair that lies at the root of racial hatred and anti-Semitism. Working as a therapist in the 1970s, Rabbi Lerner sensed a yearning in his clients to transcend the individualism and selfishness of society and to move their lives and their communities toward a higher spiritual and ethical framework. At this moment of history, when public life is more and more disparaged and debased, Michael Lerner's vision of a society based on caring and mutual regard and recognition recognizing individuals as infinitely precious, offers a way of doing politics that no longer forces people to choose between their deepest spiritual longings and their desire to get along in the world. Would you please join me in welcoming to the Town Hall Forum Rabbi Michael Lerner on the topic, Transcending Racism and Hate. Well, I'm very delighted to be here uh, today in, um, in Minneapolis, in uh, Minnesota. Uh, I've gotten uh, in the past day an opportunity to meet some of the fine staff here and the vision that uh, is being in, um, realized here in Westminster, and it's fantastic. Um, uh, it's really an incredible, incredible institution. And um, so it's an honor to be here. Uh, um, all around the country, people look to um, Minnesota, particularly the, um, we've been impressed with the courage of uh, your Senator Paul Wellstone. Uh, it was really in incredible to see one man in the Senate who was willing to stand up when he was uh, up for election and stand up for principles. It was a very fine example. And a <clears throat> So it's really an honor to be, to be here with you today. Uh, my topic is transcending racism. And uh, the first question you may ask is, didn't we do that already? Uh, after all, we passed civil rights legislation in the 60s. We've had several decades of affirmative action. Uh, there's been certainly a major development of a black middle class in the United States. Um, and I want to acknowledge the real accomplishments of the past few decades. They ought not to be neglected or denied. And yet, in the actual experience of many African Americans, the reality of racism persists. And it persists as well in the experience of other minority groups in the United States, in the experience of Latinos and Asian Americans, and to a lesser but not yet totally absent extent, it persists in the experience of Jews. It's not only the experience of young blacks who disproportionately fill our prisons. In many American communities, blacks know that they are likely to be stopped and harassed by white police without provocation, and it's only the very rare moments that someone has a video camera to, fil to film it, as happened in the case of Rodney King. 
Blacks know that when they walk around in a department store, they are far more likely to be viewed as suspicious and even followed by the undercover guards, that they are far more likely to be suspected of crimes should they occur, and that people continue to move to the suburbs for fear that they will end up in a neighborhood that is disproportionately black. But of course it goes far deeper than this. Blacks know that poverty is disproportionately distributed uh, in the inner, uh, inner city black communities. A few short days ago, the U.S. government announced a compromise settlement with one of the many mortgage companies that, has, uh, that it, uh, the government had proved does not provide loans fairly to blacks. And the reaction of many whites, perhaps you read about it in the newspaper, was, oh, we thought that redlining had been stopped a few decades ago. The truth is that the media gives a few weeks of focus to its crisis of the month and then moves on. And the rest of us feel reassured that it's been dealt with. But what most minorities can tell you is this, being talked about is not necessarily dealing with it. And so the problems persist. Liberal solutions have not been adequate to the problems. Liberals have attempted to create equal opportunity for minorities to compete in the marketplace. But racism isn't just about economic well-being. It is about something deeper. It is the inability to see other human beings as created in the image of God and, the, and as equally deserving of love and caring. If we can't see people that way, then it's no surprise that many people will feel co covertly relieved to know that since they live in a society in which some portion is going to be disadvantaged, that it's going to be the blacks who will get a disproportionate amount of that disadvantage. To the extent that people don't feel that this is happening to them, but to some other, then they will feel less threatened by the nature of the social system within which they live and less likely to engage in activity to change it. Moreover, to the extent that people believe that nothing fundamental can be changed in our society and hence that someone must suffer, uh, they'd prefer it be someone other than themselves. But racism requires people to distance themselves from their intuitive attitude that they have, really starting from childhood, that everyone is created in the image of God. People have to unlearn what they knew as children, that they need justifications to believe that people are not all equal. And this is what is given to them by a society that tries to teach us that we live in a meritocracy, a society based on merit. So where you end up is merely a function of how smart you are, how deserving you are. In that context, people come to accept that those who are most disadvantaged must necessarily have it coming to them. The more that we can convince ourselves that there, uh, there is no such thing as the deserving poor, only the undeserving poor, that the poor are not a product of a system that unequally distributes wealth, and power, but only a product of their inner failings. The more we can believe that, the more we can begin to tell ourselves that these people are less than us, different from us, not really deserving. So it's not such a bad thing that it's happening to them. Still, unlearning the ability to see everyone as created in the image of God isn't so easy. It takes a village to create a racist. A whole society that has learned to turn its head and avert its glance from the suffering of those who have been historically its victims. And here I want to talk to you about what I learned about the way people unlearn the ability to see others as created in the image of God. To do this, I need to talk to you a little bit about my work with middle-income working people and the work that we're doing in Tikkun magazine. Um, for the past 20 years, um, we, in the community around Tikkun, a group of psychotherapists, social workers, social change activists, union activists, um, uh, have been doing research on the psychodynamics of American society, and in particular on why people have moved to the right. Now I say moved to the right because I'm not talking about the hardcore racists uh, and the hardcore rightists in the United States. I'm not talking about those people who uh, have always been on the right, but rather the 30 to 40 percent of the population that has moved to the right over the course of the past 20 to 30 years. And um, we ran groups of people, 10 to 12 people in a group. They usually lasted for 10 or 12 weeks. 
Um, they went very deep into people's lives. Uh, over the course of the past um, several year, uh, two decades, we've seen over 5,000 middle-income working people in these groups. And what we learned essentially about why people are moving to the right is this. People are moving to the right because they are in a great deal of pain in their lives and because the right speaks to that pain, albeit in a distorted fashion. Now, um, to make sense of this, I want to tell you a little bit about that pain because most people end up in work situations in which they report that they have very little opportunity to use their intelligence, their creativity, their ability to cooperate with each other. Uh, I know that many, of, uh, many people who uh, come from upper middle class backgrounds find this hard to believe because they have much more satisfying work situations. But most American working people find that they are extremely frustrated in their, in their daily work situation. But what we, this that I've just re, uh, reported to you is something that's well known in the sociological literature, the, the alienation at the world of work. But what we discovered was something else that was quite astounding to us. Uh, and that was is that many working people also report that one of the things that's most painful about the world of work is that it gives them no opportunity to use their, their um, to, to connect their work to some framework of meaning and purpose that they can really believe in. That is, to connect what they're doing all day long to the ultimate ethical and spiritual values that they believe in. And so they report that they're wasting their lives day after day in the world of work because they don't believe that it connects to anything important to them. Um, it was astound Actually, we, we realized that what was most astounding about this was how much we were astounded by it. Because um, in uh, the psychologists, the uh, the intellectuals, the um, union activists, the progressives have a certain kind of understanding of middle Americans that goes something like this. We, the intellectuals, the liberals, the progressives, the psychotherapists, we have meaning needs, but they only have material needs. And what we learned was how deeply elitist that understanding is. The fact is that people hunger for some framework of meaning and purpose in their lives and feel frustrated that they can't get it. Nevertheless, um, these same people um, are stuck in a situation in which they believe that the only way they might be able to get that is to accumulate some more money at the world of work so that in the few hours outside the world of work, they could shape some framework of meaning and purpose for themselves. And so people desperately try to succeed in the world of work while simultaneously hating the way that it is organized and what it's about. And as they do that, as they attempt to succeed in the world of work, they learn the bottom line of the world of work. They try to figure out how to be more successful in the world of work. And the bottom, and what they learn is, first of all, the common sense of the world of work, which is um, looking out for number one. Looking out for number one, the common sense of the world of work. And number two, they learn the bottom line, that their success is going to depend on maximizing the bottom line. And the bottom line is to maximize wealth and power, either for yourself or for your boss. And increasingly, over the course of the past several decades, more and more workers are engaged in the following uh, uh, pursuit. They are in situations in which they're no longer just producing the, the, goods, and serv uh, uh, the goods of the society, like cars or steel or uh, the, the products of the society or uh, in agriculture, but more and more in the workplace, people are engaged in manipulating consciousness, getting other people to look at you the way you need to have them see you that is shaping other people to either buy your product or to buy you. Very often in large corporations, part of your job is to sell yourself to those higher in the hierarchy to convince them that you will facilitate their ascent to power. Now, in the process, more and more, what people are unlearning is how to see other human beings as created in the image of God. People are unlearning how to treat other human beings as though they are fundamentally deserving of love and respect and caring, and instead to see them primarily in terms of what you can get from them and how they will advance your own uh, ascent to, to power. And so the, the, the consequence of this is that people come home from the world of work and they don't take off the ways that they've learned to see other human beings. Um, as though they were so many dirty clothes. The what they have learned all day in the world of work is brought home. And so the most frequent criti uh, critique of this society that you hear, the most, the greatest, um, uh, frequent, most frequently repeated problem that people have in their personal lives goes something like this. I feel surrounded by people who are just out for themselves. 
people are, and, and I feel that everybody is, going, is uh, going to maximize their own advantage. People are just going to take advantage in any way to, um, without regard to the consequences for others. And I don't know who I can trust. I don't know who's going to be there for me. And this uh, manifests through all aspects of the society, from the very top of the economic ladder, in which a rip-off consciousness allows some, not all, but some of corporate leaders to think that it's perfectly appropriate to rip off the resources of the environment without regard to the future survivability of the planet, all the way down the economic ladder, permeating every sector to some, not all, poor people who think it might be appropriate to rip you off in your home or uh, in your street, on the street or in your car. Um, the, the ethos of going for oneself without regard to the consequences for others is, permeates the entire society. And as a result, it has disastrous consequences, not only in the crime that I've just mentioned, whether it be corporate crime or individual crime, but also um, in the difficulty that people have in teaching their kids how to um, uh, any sort of values, because um, the kids turn on the television and immediately realize that what they're being taught in religious school or what they're being taught by their parents has no relationship to the actual way the society operates. And that's where they face a real crisis of, of values and trying to teach values to children. Similarly, uh, friendships. People report that it's extremely difficult to, um, to retain the kinds of friendships that used to exist in the society, leave aside the question of whether this is nostalgia or not, this is people's perception that there used to be something different in society, that the kind of friendships today are based on an exchange relationship. You give me and I give you an equal amount back. Um, the market consciousness has shaped friendships. What's absent is the sense of solidarity. I am there for you regardless of whether you can give me an equal amount back. I am there for you because you deserve my caring and my concern. So people become less secure that the friendships will be there when they most need them. And similarly, and most importantly, in loving relationships and in family life, the crisis of these values permeates uh, families so that more and more people begin to see each other through the framework of the market consciousness that they have learned all day long. They see other human beings in terms of what I can get from from that other human being. And in relationship terms, this is translated into the language of how much do you satisfy my needs? And the value of another human being is so, seen solely in terms of the degree to which this other person satisfies my needs. Um, and loving commitments then become something like this. They become a statement that given my assessment of who's likely to fall for me in the short run, you will satisfy more of my needs than anybody else, so I'll stick with you. Now, the problem with that kind of framework of commitment is that, um, uh, and this is a problem, it creates tremendous amount of insecurity in people. Why? Because peop not just for the 50% of marriages that end in divorce, but for the 50% that don't end in divorce, because people are increasingly unable to be, uh, feel secure that their partner will not, at some point in his or her life, be able to cut a better deal. And if they can cut a better deal, uh, I know coming, they come to me as a psychotherapist or as a rabbi, and they say, well, I've met somebody else who will satisfy more of my needs. And that trumps every argument, you see, because um, the, uh, that consciousness that um, we look at other human beings primarily in terms of what they can do for us. So what's been unlearned in this process is the ability to see other human beings as created in the image of God, of fundamentally deserving, of love and respect and caring. Um, and the, the inability to see other human beings in that way that per permeates the society creates a real crisis in loving relationships and families, a real crisis in friendships, a real crisis in values, a real crisis around crime. And what the right has done is to come forward and position itself as the articulator of the pain of that crisis and to say there's a crisis in families and, and friendships and crime and values, and they are correct. There is such a crisis, and they're further correct in saying that it has a great deal to do with the ethos of selfishness and materialism. But then what they write, and here I don't want to say that everyone on the right, but this has been a major tendency on the right, what the right often does, or major forces on the right do, is to then uh, put forward an analysis that I think is deeply destructive. Because what the right then does is to say that the selfishness and materialism in the society is caused by, and then they turn to the demeaned others of the society. 
uh, wh whoever that is in any given society, because the same dynamic happens on the right in Western Europe as well and in other societies, but they have a different demeaned others. In this society, that tends to be overwhelmingly African Americans, and, the, uh, and then secondly, gays and lesbians, feminists, Jews, immigrants, the labor movement, the other, whoever the other is in the context. And these groups, they, the right says, aided and abetted by uh, liberal big government um, are uh, manifesting, the liberals in big government are providing some services for these groups. So therefore, that's where the selfishness comes from. Now the irony is, is the right is the very force that champions the ethos of selfishness and materialism in the world of work. Because in the world of work, this, the, the political right in our country says that it is totally inappropriate to introduce questions of social responsibility and that this collective good will best be served if each individual and each corporation pursues its or her or his own self-interest without any restraint and that magically the market will reconcile everybody's interests. So, what you, so whenever people come forward and try to introduce questions of social responsibility in the world of work, the right is totally opposed to any such restrictions on the pursuit of self-interest. So you might ask, how do they get away with this? Here is the right championing the ethos of selfishness and materialism in the world of work and championing the pain that people experience in, uh, in uh, personal life. And the answer is, the way they get away with this is because the liberal and progressive forces aren't even in the relevant ballpark. The liberal and progressive forces do not understand the ethical and spiritual crisis. And when they hear it being talked about, they conflate the, um, the uh, two parts of the analysis. They, when they hear about the ethical and spiritual crisis, they think it's simply code words for racism, sexism, and homophobia. In other words, uh, they miss the reality of that crisis and hence see those issues entirely to the right. Now, as a result, um, we have the right actually fostering a set of ideas that lead people to blame those who are most oppressed in the society. And so if you, um, if you want to transcend the racism in the society, if you want to transcend the, the history of hate in the society, you have to take up the issue of, cha uh, of challenging the right and its analysis and the way that it has covertly allowed for the continuation of racist categories, the distancing from, for example, African Americans in the society, the, our ability to think of them as fundamentally other, but this time uh, with a justification that people feel that they have, that this other is causing uh, selfishness in the society and causing materialism in the society by going for its own supposedly narrow, narrow self-interest. Now, how do you counter the right? The only way to counter the right, in my view, is to, uh, to talk about the ethical and spiritual crisis as a real crisis. If you listen to hate radio, you will hear the following message. Um, you, listener, are not getting the love, the caring, the respect, the recognition, and the meaning in your life that you deserve. And the reason you're not getting it is because these others, African Americans, gays and lesbians, etc., they are taking it from you, aided and abetted by liberals and big government who are taking from you and giving to them. And the key to what I'm saying is part of this analysis is right. Most people are not getting the love, the caring, the respect, the recognition, and the sense of meaning that they deserve. And because they are not getting it, they are in deep pain. And the liberal forces have not even understood or acknowledged that pain. They conflate that with the, the right solution and they say there is no ethical and spiritual crisis and as a result they have nothing to say. They have no way of addressing this. Now, don't get me wrong, I've been very much supportive of the liberal and progressive forces in the spheres that they do have something to say. In the economic realm and in the political rights realm, the left and liberals and progressive forces uh, have, uh, deserve our respect and our gratitude for all that they have struggled for. Those struggles are not over and they deserve continuing support. But the reality today is that liberal and progressive forces can deliver almost nothing to the most oppressed sectors of the society. They can deliver almost nothing to the poor. And in fact, they have repositioned themselves as a result of the move of, the, of American politics to the right. They have repositioned themselves as accepting many of the right wing's analyses and saying, basically, and this is the Clinton position, um, we will do the same dismantling of social programs that the right wants to do, but we'll do it in a kinder and gentler way. But that is not because Clinton or the liberals are bad people. 
it's because they have no understanding of why this movement has taken place, a movement to the right in society. So if you want to counter what the right is doing, you need an alternative vision, an alternative understanding, and you need to speak to the pain that people are in in the society. And to do that, we have developed at Tikkun magazine, by the way, Tikkun is T-I-K-K-U-N, it means, uh, it's a Hebrew word, it means to heal, repair, and transform the world. And at Tikkun magazine, we've developed this thing that we call the politics of meaning. And the politics of meaning is, has as its goal to challenge the ethos of selfishness and materialism and to change the bottom line in American society. To put as a central goal of, Amer of a progressive politics, a politics that says we need a new bottom line. We need a new definition of productivity and efficiency, that productivity and efficiency should no longer be judged solely by the degree to which an institution maximizes wealth and power, but also to the degree that an institution maximizes people's capacity to be ethically, spiritually, and ecologically sensitive and capable of sustaining loving relationships. Now, that's a big change. <laughs> That's a very, very big change in what the bottom line is in America. And our movement, the movement for politics of meaning, is a movement that's going to take decades before it really uh, is taken seriously, just as it took several decades for the women's movements uh, and its fundamental change of paradigm to be taken seriously. But what I want to submit to you today is that if you want to transcend racism in the society, if you want to transcend hate in the society, we need to re-champion the notion that every human being is created in the image of God. And we live in a world in which the entire social and economic fabric tends toward the undermining of that perception. It tends toward the marginalizing of, that, of people who think in those terms. It tends towards the rewarding of, uh, of uh, the maximization of wealth and power and the ridicule and deep cynicism of anybody who says you could live in a world with a different perspective, a perspective in which people are, can be treated as though they are created in the image of God, as though they are fundamentally worthy of respect and caring. And if we want really to challenge racism, then it's not going to be by another economic program or another political rights program. It has to be at a much more fundamental level. It has to be at the level of addressing the pain that people are in that allows them to be manipulated in a racist direction. And to address that pain means to address their feelings that nobody really takes them seriously, that nobody seriously respects them, that they are a fodder for somebody else's advance. And, uh, and to address that seriously means to challenge the economic and political institutions that do treat us that way and that do uh, tend to lead us to think that to be rational is to maximize one's own self-advantage and that loving and caring are very sweet words that deserve to be in uh, church on Sunday or on synagogue on Saturday but have no relevance to the political realm. So what I want to say is that the challenge of transcending racism in our society is really a ch uh, is not just a, uh, a narrow side issue. It's a central issue. The only way it can be fundamentally uprooted in our society is to challenge the whole way that our society understands human beings, to undermine the ways that we distance ourselves from each other and think that we can maximize our own advantage without caring for others. And that means a politics of meaning. That is to say, it means challenging the common sense of the society and putting forward a struggle a fundamentally new kind of struggle for an ethically and spiritual and ecologically sensitive society. I invite you to join with me in doing that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rabbi. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is Rabbi Michael Lerner, editor of Tikkun, co-author of Jews and Blacks, Let the Healing Begin, and the author of The Politics of Meaning. Rabbi Lerner has just spoken on the topic Transcending Racism and Hate. Today's program is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. While the ushers collect questions from the audience, those of you who are unable to stay for the question and answer period may feel free to go, and those who are listening in on the radio may call in a question by calling 332-3421.
Mr. Lerner, would you say uh, a bit more of what are the, uh, the concrete politics that would translate the alternative vision of a politics of meaning? What would it look like if we had it? Well, first of all, I want to say that I wouldn't blame anybody if uh, hearing me talk about changing the bottom line in American society, you started with the supposition, is this guy a kook or what? I mean, doesn't he know that uh, um, it's, it, for the past 10,000 years of human history, um, things have been organized in a, um, in a particular way of rewarding materialism and selfishness? And uh, where does he come off with thinking that it's possible to make these kinds of changes? So I want to remind you of your own experience um, over the past 30 years, because it was only 30 years ago that women came forward and said, we want to challenge patriarchy. And um, people greeted them with the same kind of incredulity, namely, tell us a society in the history of the human race where women have had equal power in the bedroom, in the, in the workplace, in the kitchen. And of course, um, women's precise point was that there hadn't been those societies and that that's what needed to be changed. Um, but the argument from what was, was a very um, uh, imperfect argument. Um, people said to these women, be rational, it's totally irrational to think you can make fundamental changes. Well, I say thank God for uh, that in the past 30 years, most women have come to be irrational in that sense. They challenge the, the inevitability of patriarchy, they challenge the inevitability of inequality, and although patriarchy hasn't been dismantled yet, nevertheless the advances have been tremendous. And um, so the politics of meaning movement is, um, uh, often derives many of our insights in part from the women's movement, in part from the spiritual, the collective spiritual history of the human race. And, um, but one of the things that we do as a first step in this process is to, um, like the women's movement, develop consciousness raising groups that help people um, really explore their own lives and how deeply your childhood, your relationships, the way that you felt about yourself in the, when you entered grammar school, the ways that you were treated by your parents, their issues and their concerns, how much this has all been distorted by the way that everybody has learned to see each other primarily in terms of what they can get and how much they have to maximize wealth and power in their own individual advantage. So the, um, the first step is consciousness racing. But the second step if, after that is we are, we are creating groups of people in workplaces to talk about what that workplace would look like if there were a new bottom line in the workplace. For example, we've had groups of lawyers, groups of doctors, people in various labor, movement, uh, labor unions who are sitting together and saying, what would, my, what would this look like? If, um, if we really were going for a social practice, trying to build my workplace in such a way that we were aiming at maximizing love and caring and ethical and spiritual and ecological sensitivity. The only rule in these discussions is don't let in the reality police. All the reality police are all the voices in your head that tell you it's impossible. Nothing can ever be different. You have to be realistic and accept the way things are. And as people begin that process of allowing themselves to think about what would it be like if you organized your work according to your own highest values, um, people begin to find that they share common values very often and that they're very excited about what, it, what the world could be like. Because this is the one thing that we've not been allowed to do, is to allow ourselves to think about what it could be like if we were really to go for our highest values. Now then we move on to yet another level because you're asking me about, well, concretely, how will this look politically? So let me give you, um, say, I've, I've, I've focused here a lot on the individual change, but now I want to give you an example of how this might translate in the political realm um, in terms of, say, very fundamental changes. If we're really talking, as we are, about building a society that rewards love and caring, okay, think of that, that every economic institution, instead of just rewarding selfishness, should, re -love, uh, should reward love and caring and ethical and spiritual behavior. Now, if you want to make that a reality, then we have to ask, well, how are we going to do that? And that's the challenge ahead of building this movement, is to ask people to help us figure out the details of what their economic institutions and political institutions would look like if they were based on this different principle. But I'll give you as a, um, the um, two examples. One is something roughly comparable to ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, as you will recall, Equal Rights Amendment never passed, but it played a very important role for the women's movement in sort of formulating an idea of the direction that one could go and for legitimating that direction. So we have an amendment to the Constitution that we're talking about that is equally unlikely to pass, 
but which nevertheless will have a very important role in shaping the debate in American society over the course uh, of the next several decades. And when you, when, uh, when you hear it, come forward. Remember you heard it first here at Westminster. And the, the, the social responsibility amendment to the Constitution that we're putting forward is, um, would say the following, that every, that every 20 years, this is an amendment to the Constitution of the United States, every 20 years, every corporation has to reincorporate, and at the time that it reincorporates, it must prove that it's had a history of social responsibility. From now, now let, let me give one, one, now that one will shape quite a discussion in the country and a different way of thinking about corporations and their, uh, and uh, the, you, you see what I'm saying? It's, it, and it, it, it is an attempt, it's one attempt, we're not anti-corporate, we're anti-selfishness and materialism. So there are many people inside corporations who actually would love to build a corporation that is more according to their highest values only they don't feel that they have any external support. If there is a movement of the sort that we're talking about, this would have that consequence. Now, a second part of that, um, this is not on the, on the federal level, but on the state and city level, people are now beginning to talk, and I hope that people in Minneapolis and in Minnesota will begin to talk about this idea of a, a statewide or citywide initiative to put on the ballot that will do, require the following. When, when the government issues, the city government or the state government issues a contract um, for some service, let's say they're going to build a highway or some, they're going to uh, paint a building or they're going to um, uh, acquire computers for their school system or whatever. Whenever they are offering a contract, um, then the competing uh, corporations that are, that are applying for this contract, besides um, showing that they can provide the service at a, at a reasonable price, that in addition to that, the government agency must take into account the history of social responsibility of that corporation. And so that two corporations that are equally, equally good at satisfying the contract and other respects, um, the one that should get it is the one that has the best history of social responsibility. And to do that, we are asking corporations to issue each, uh, once every two years, what we're calling an ethical impact report. An ethical impact report. And a report on the ethical impact of the corporation, first on the ethical climate that exists inside the corporation, the what gets rewarded there amongst people who work for it. Does, are you rewarded for the degree to which you are cooperative with other people and ethically and spiritually sensitive? Or are you rewarded for the degree that you can figure out how to advance yourself while pushing others aside and hurting others in the process? And uh, uh, that's one level. Are, is the corporation ethically sensitive to the needs of the community around it? What are its investment policies? Uh, what are its advertising policies? What's the ethical impact of the way that it advertises its products in the world? Does it foster a sense of, uh, of holiness and of, uh, the, of goodness of human beings, or does it foster a sense of, uh, of competitiveness and of the impossibility of, uh, of um, creating a society based on, on love and caring. So in other words, an ethical impact report is a whole new set of ways of thinking about what social responsibility would be about. Um, of course, the ethical impact report is going to require a lot of work to figure out how to do it. Uh, we're encouraging people all around the country to begin to engage in the conversation about how to measure the ethical impact report, how to, how to work this out. We invite you to come join us in this process. But you see, this is a different direction for politics. It's a direction uh, that says, let's figure out a way to reward ethical and ethically sensitive behavior in a society that today makes it against your interest to live according to your values. Uh, one person writes from a white middle-class liberal, what is the single most effective thing that I can do to end racism and hate? I think the, the most effective thing that you can do to end racism and hate is to help people see themselves as created in the image of God, that is, as deserving of love and caring and respect. Race, because the fundamentals of racism and hate come from the pain that people are in in their own lives, which then gets transmitted onto someone else. So the most, effective, the, the most effective thing we can do is to relieve that level of pain. There is no way that we're going to beat racism in a society in which people are in deep pain. Because as long as they're in the deep pain, there will always be those who can figure out ways to manipulate that pain against um, someone. 
And racism, in a way, is just the principle of selfishness applied to a particular group. It says, my needs are more important than your needs. And so if somebody's going to suffer, let it be them and not us. And so, um, if, so to the extent that people believe that nothing can be changed in the society, they'd rather it be somebody else. And if the somebody else is somebody that you can see as fundamentally different than yourself, then all the better. So, um, so racism will be there as long as people are in the deep pain that they're in, and we need to combat that deep pain. Otherwise, we're kidding ourselves. We'll have another piece of legislation here, another piece of legislation there, another affirmative action program here or there. It won't work. It won't work to get at the root of why pe people allow themselves to be manipulated in this way. Let me follow that up with uh, another question. As a psychotherapist, do you see a connection between people's rejection of their own internal otherness and their fear and rejection of the other in the external world? A very sophisticated question. Uh, yes, I think that, that um, there's a way in which um, we find very difficult to accept parts of ourselves that uh, we view as evil or bad, and then we tend to project that on others. But the solution to that is not to suddenly say, oh, I see what I'm doing. I'm projecting this. The solution to that is to relook at oneself and to understand that the ways in which we've been feeling bad about ourselves are not well grounded. That in fact, uh, every one of us really embodies the spirit of God and deserves, to, uh, deserves love and caring. What, what I think there's been a problem among some sectors of the psychotherapeutic community to feel that they've come to a deep awareness of the dark side of human beings as though this was the fundamental essence of what, what is real about human beings and then say, well, it's always going to be there. It may always be there. There may always be a dark, a, a dark side. But how much, how big, how large a, a presence it has can be dramatically reduced when we learn, when we teach ourselves how to accept ourselves much more fully. But self-acceptance in this society can't be divorced from other acceptance. Because ultimately, part of the reason why people feel so bad about themselves is because they have not experienced the love, the caring, and the recognition that they deserve. And the economic and political institutions of the society make it less likely that they're going to get that, not more likely. So the process of changing what goes on on the inside must also involve changing what's going on on the outside. And the big error of psychotherapy, and I'm, I am a psychotherapist, but the big error of psychotherapy has been to divorce these two realms and to think that one could just work on what was going on inside without dealing with what's going on outside. On the other hand, the big error from my standpoint of many uh, social liberals and progressives and Marxists has been the thought that they could just change what's happening on the outside without dealing with what's going on on the inside. It's the interaction that is fundamental. Two of the questions have to do with the relationship between the Jewish community and the African American community. Would you explain the fundamental breakdown of the connection between African Americans and Jews? Yes, I don't think there has been a fundamental breakdown. What, um, I don't believe that that is the case. If you look at um, the elections of um, the past, uh, let's say the last two elections, you will see that Jews um, uh, are the group that, apart from African Americans, have voted most heavily for liberal and progressive candidates of any group in the society. In 1994, when there was a big um, victory for right-wing programs whose covert message was, let's screw these blacks. Let's, let's get rid of their, their, uh, any social program that is giving to them. Uh, let's undermine their... Uh, that was, that was the, the, the covert message that was being put forward. Um, and the majority of those who voted, voted um, in favor of Republican uh, program to do essentially that. Um, the, the, at, in 1994, 78% of Jews voted for liberal candidates. Okay, so that we were, uh, of the non-African-American constituencies, we were the ones the most overwhelmingly in, in support of continuing social programs. And you might argue that African-Americans, um, because of their uh, lower economic status, were also voting their economic interests. But for the standpoint of Jews who were at a, better, a higher economic level, they were, at least on the economic level, voting against their interests. 
So I think it would be very hard to then argue that, um, that there has been this fundamental abandonment of the, uh, the alliance between blacks and Jews. What there has been, have been, um, the t uh, from my standpoint, t too much tolerance of, uh, of racist voices in the, uh, in the African-American community, uh, of which Farrakhan is the most obvious, too much tolerance of that. Um, and that has simultaneously been dramatically overplayed by the media because the media is deeply committed to cynicism and hence deeply committed to the belief that people will never act according to their anything but their own narrow material self-interest. So when they have the situation of Jews voting against their material self-interest, it runs counter to the, to the religion of the media, that people should only be motivated by material self-interest, and they have done what they can to, uh, to accelerate and accentuate the problems in, of the, uh, and the tensions between our two communities. Now, on the other hand, you do have a section of, of Jews who have, been, um, who have uh, decided that really their highest goal is making it. And though that section of Jews are disproportionately represented in some sectors of the organized Jewish community, but they are not equally represented in the vast majority of American Jews. This is another problem that I could go into in another talk, and I've written about this in my book, Jewish Renewal, A Path to Healing and Transformation. Most American Jews don't feel represented by the organized Jewish community. But in the organized Jewish community, uh, there has been a sector, particularly of the leadership, that has said, you know, We've had enough of helping others. We need to just take care of ourselves. And in doing that, they've, bought, uh, they've done that under the aegis of being a truer American. Because if the dominant ethos of an America is uh, uh, selfishness and materialism, why should we try to be different? Well, of course, I have a the Jewish Renewal, that book, is about an answer to that question, that why the Jews ought to be different is precisely because we, we like many of our Christian brothers and sisters, come from a biblical tradition that tells us that we have a different responsibility besides making it materially, that we have a responsibility to build a world of love and caring, and hence the politics of meaning is in some very deep way rooted in the Bible and in the biblical perception. But that section of Jews has said, let's turn our backs on all this social programs and so forth, and that has, and these two have played off against each other, the Farrakhan voices on the one hand, the, uh, the, the voices of Jewish selfishness on the other hand. I want to report, though, that just as Cornel West, um, uh, my buddy, my friend, my colleague, the guy who, uh, who wrote with me this book on uh, Jews and Blacks at the Healing Begin, uh, Cornell often points out how, what a small percentage of the African-American community responds to, to uh, the voice of Farrakhan and other haters. It's also true that a very, very small percentage of American Jews respond to the voice of selfishness. And in both communities, there remains a fundamental commitment to social transformation. The way that that can happen is, is um, to build common ground between these two communities is, of course, to go to higher ground. And that's what the politics of meaning is about, is finding that higher ground by talking about transformations of the society that are not just economic, but spiritual and ethical as well. Um, we have just a little bit of time left, about five minutes, and uh, I'd like to ask you one more question from the audience and then one sure. that's rather personal. How do secularists and humanists fit into your program if they do not see people as created in the image of God? Well, I use the language of God um, because most Americans do believe in God and do respond to the language of God. But uh, the politics of meaning is not only for people who come from a religious tradition. It's from anybody who can recognize that human beings deserve to be treated as in Kantian, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher Immanuel Kant's language, as um, ends and not as means or in Martin Buber's language, uh, to respond to other people from the standpoint of an I-thou relationship rather than an I-it relationship. There's no reason why people have to believe in God or be part of any religious community to recognize that human beings deserve this kind of fundamental respect and love and caring, and that this society makes this in short supply. Um, now, at the same time, I do want to say that politics of meaning wants to privilege a particular way of looking at the universe because, and this is something that liberal politics has really failed to address, and that is that we, want, uh, we recognize the role of science and technology and, the, the, and looking at the universe from the standpoint of how do you manipulate and control it to get certain kinds of results. 
But at the same time, we believe that another consciousness needs to be introduced into our public life. And that consciousness is looking at the universe and at each other from the standpoint of awe, wonder, and radical amazement at the glory of this universe. And our society and the economic and political institutions, again, marginalize this. The deep cynicism of the media makes one think that one could only be talking New Age gibberish if one talked about these kinds, kinds of concerns. But uh, the politics of meaning wants to identify with the religious world in its concern about looking at the world from that standpoint of awe and wonder and amazement and looking at other human beings. Not simply in terms of what you can get from them, but in terms of understanding that you are facing another miracle when you see another human being. And to respond in that way, I do not believe you have to be part of a traditional religious community or use the language of God in order to respond to the universe in that way. Thank you. One, one member of the audience has asked for some help in how, how do you protect yourself? How does a person protect himself or herself from uh, market forces influencing the totality of consciousness? I'd like to ask you, in closing, if you would share with us something of your own spiritual practice and how it addresses that. Well, I'm very fortunate to be part of a Jewish community that has taught me about the Sabbath. And for 25 hours uh, each week, from uh, about 40 minutes before sunset on Friday night till uh, a certain uh, number of minutes after sunset on Saturday night, um, we dedicate this, these 25 hours to what I just talked about, to awe, wonder, and amazement, to celebrating the glory of the universe. And for me, that has uh, turned out to be a very deep um, kind of meditative experience that a meditation that involves in part connecting with a religious community on Friday night and Saturday morning. Uh, it is a meditation that involves joy and celebration. When I was growing up, all I had heard was what you're not allowed to do. Now I realize, being in the world of work, what a freedom it is to be told that you can't think about work for 25 hours, that you can't be involved in getting and spending and controlling, that the way to, that for 25 hours we respond to the universe not from the standpoint of how to manipulate and control and dominate it, but from the standpoint of the joy and wonder and celebration of it all. So the Sabbath, taken seriously, using its most strict requirements, ends up being a fabulous uh, spiritual experience and one that has refreshed my soul and connected me more deeply to God and given me the sense that the world could be fundamentally changed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Lerner, for uh, your wonderful, uh, hopeful spirit calling us together rather than uh, pulling apart from one another into divisive uh, groups, for putting before our eyes again the things of wonder and of awe and of beauty, for calling us to see ourselves as created uh, in the image of God, uh, as uh, uh, wonderful people, all of us, who deserve a better life and who can create it. Uh, we thank you for being with us today, and uh, uh, God bless you in your work, and we thank each of you for being with us today for the Town Hall Forum.